All right, grab your Bibles. We are in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. If you, um, I hope you've got one of these journals, but if you haven't, we have more. Last week I hyped it up and, you know, we kind of run out. But we just bought um, some more copies, and so over there next to Ian, if you put, yeah, to his right, there's a box there, and if you need one of the Ecclesiastes journal, you can go and grab one. It's our gift, um, it's a gift from us to you. Um, you can have it, yeah? Brilliant. All right, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. This week, we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses of chapter 2. I'm going to read and... Follow along as I read. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched With my heart, how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and the striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know from experience that our hearts will remain restless and dissatisfied until we find our rest and ultimate satisfaction in you. So God, I pray that this morning through the study and the preaching of your word, may we become more and more satisfied with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, Two weeks ago, I told you guys about my son, um, who's just started his football career. Um, He's, uh, you know, he's an okay player. Um, He's got a lot to work on. He has. But he's getting there. So yesterday I was at one of his games 
Um, unfortunately, they lost. It was about 10-1 um, or 10-2. They just got destroyed. This is their third game they've played, and this is their third game they've lost um, by a considerable amount. Um, and so I'm on the touchline. I'm just like, gosh, what is happening here? Um, you know, I'm the British guy, um, you know, and my son is on a team that's getting destroyed. Anyway, as I was standing, I saw an older lady um, sitting, so I sparked a conversation with her. I can't remember her name, but she happened to be Jewish. Um, and I started to talk to her, and I was super excited because we're studying um, Ecclesiastes, which is from the Old Testament, and um, most of the Jews, Israelites, know about this book. And so I started telling her and using, you know, you know, Hevel and using my Hebrew and trying to impress her. And she corrected me on multiple occasions, but that was good and that was fine. Um, but as we were talking about Ecclesiastes, which she knew about, um, she said something really interesting. And she said, Man, or Herlef, that's, you know, Ecclesiastes. She said, it's, it's a very timeless book. Um, it relates to you no matter what generation that you're in. Um, and I heard that, and I said to myself, she's absolutely right, isn't she? Her observation of Ecclesiastes being so relevant, so applicable for us now, in the 21st century, is spot on. Because Ecclesiastes, like all of Scripture, is timeless. Although it was written thousands of years ago in a language most of us don't even know about, it still speaks to modern-day issues with precision and clarity. The book of Ecclesiastes Really good example of this, written thousands of years ago, but as we began to study it, you've realized that, man, it speaks directly to these times and to your life. And so last week, we used our time to do what? To look at, um, listen closely to the preacher. And by the way, the preacher, I'm going to be using the preacher a lot. The preacher is the author of Ecclesiastes. Um, some people think it's the great King Solomon, some people don't, um, and I'm just trying to avoid taking any sides. I have my opinions, and they change, but we're going to stick with the preacher. And so you're going to hear the preacher, and whenever I say the preacher, I'm talking about the author of the writer um, behind this book. And so last week, we saw how he spoke from experience, and he helped us see how knowledge and wisdom in and of themselves, um, he called them vanity, right? He called them uh, the idea of seeking knowledge and trying to understand everything. He illustrated it by saying it's like chasing after the wind. What he means by that is that knowledge is futile, futile and fleeting. Um, Philip Ryken says, um, first he, that is the preacher, tried to think his way to an answer using his mind, to figure out the mysteries of existence, but his quest for knowledge through human intellect ended in vexation um, and sorrow. So that's what we covered last week. But the preacher didn't give up on his search for meaning. 
He tries again, and this time, he tries with something tangible and immediate. And so after failing to find fulfillment through knowledge, the preacher decides to experiment with the pleasures of this life for ultimate satisfaction and happiness. The preacher sets out to do what thousands of students do every spring break, and that is to put all responsibility and work aside and pursue happiness in the pleasures of this life. And so first, if you're making notes, the preacher looks for happiness in the good life. The preacher looks for happiness in the good life. Look at the first part of verse 1. It says, he says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And so, after failed, his failed attempts to unlock the meaning of life with knowledge, the preacher looks to pleasures of this life for ultimate satisfaction and happiness. He's discovered that the harder he worked, the more disappointed he became. He also discovered that the more knowledge he acquired, the more frustrated and miserable he became. And so here, this is what he's saying to himself. I am determined to discover the meaning of life. I've tried to find fulfillment and meaning in hard work and knowledge, but it's left me disappointed. Now I'm going to experiment with pleasure. I want to find with pleasure what I didn't find with knowledge. And so the preacher goes hard after happiness in the good life. He removes his work clothes, he exits his library, and enters into a season of enjoyment, amusement, and entertainment. He, he travels to exotic locations. You can imagine he sits by the pool with cocktails, eats at highly rated restaurants, gets front row seats at the biggest theater productions and biggest sporting events. The preacher embraces a life of excessive indulgence in pleasure and luxury as an experiment to find ultimate satisfaction and meaning and happiness in life. And so how did it go for him? What was his conclusion? What was the outcome of his experiment in hedonism? Look at the last part of verse 1. But behold, this also was vanity, he says. This has been, of course, if you've read Ecclesiastes and you've been with us, this has been his constant response to everything he has looked for, um, he has looked to for meaning and satisfaction. Um, David Bowden, who is a poet, um, has this to say. He says, he tried to find a point of life in anything appealing, but all of it was deceiving. None of it delivered purpose or gain or satisfaction and meaning. None of it was permanent. None of it was permanent. All of it was fleeting. 
His pursuit of pleasure in the good life, a life of excessive indulgence in pleasure and luxury, left him feeling jaded and dissatisfied. So he concludes that this type of lifestyle is madness and a waste of time. He does. Look at verse 2. He says, you know, I said to laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? One author um, had this to say about all of this. He says that the, uh, the preacher's attitude here, um, the idea of him trying to seek pleasure and enjoyment um, is similar to a song called Live Like You're, You Were Dying by Tim McGraw. I'm not a country guy. I love a few country songs, okay? Keith Urban's my boy. Um, loved the song Cop Car, but apparently Tim McGraw's a big shot and he wrote a song called Live Like You Were Dying. And this is what's happening. The scenario is this man is diagnosed with a terminal illness and in response to this, okay, the man decides to live his best life now. Um, I've got a quote from the chorus and he, this is what the man went up to after hearing that he's got a terminally, he's terminal disease. The guy says, I went skydiving. I can't sing, okay? I was going to sing. <laughs> I'm not. I just did just a little bit. I was just going to like bust a little note, but no. All right. I went skydiving. I went rocky mountain climbing. I went 2.7 seconds on a bull named Famunchu. Fumanchu, whatever that is. And he goes on to talk about, like, he enjoyed himself. And then he starts to talk about how he started to pursue his loved ones and forgive people and everything like that. Not everyone pursues pleasure for ultimate meaning. Some people turn to it as a distraction from a lack of meaning in life. Faced with difficulty in life, some people turn to the good life or good works as an escape. And some of you, this morning in a room of this size, may be in this season. You might be looking to the pleasures of this life in order to escape the difficulty and challenges that you're facing. After concluding that a life of excessive indulgence in the good life will not satisfy, the preacher grabs a bottle of wine and thinks deeply about what exactly would be good for him to invest the rest of his life in. Right? In other words, he ponders what else could I find pleasure in. Um, as a king, the preacher has limited resources. We know that for sure, okay? If he was alive today, he would be known as a billionaire. And so for someone like him, what would be the best use of his time and resources here on earth? What would be the most rewarding thing he can give his life to that will satisfy his unhappy soul. Look at verses 4 to 6. This is what he gets up to. 
He says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. The preacher pursues happiness in great works. He worked with award-winning architects and constructors to build homes, mansions, not just one, but several. He hires the finest landscapers to plant vineyards and design gardens and parks in which they planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. He hires specialists to install irrigation systems advanced in those days to water entire forest trees. The preacher was able to start and complete construction projects that left his, his peers speechless. His building projects were one of the most awe-inspiring sights people had ever seen. Solomon indulged in the best of architecture, the best of agriculture, and the best of engineering. He planted vineyards, developed gardens, and cultivated parks. Your gardening hobby, okay, and the, you know, and and like your kind of video gaming creativeness on Minecraft, right, right, um, could not. It just couldn't come close to what the preacher was able to create in those days. It was phenomenal. But the interesting thing is, the pleasure and satisfaction he looked for in great works didn't last. It left him wanting and forced him to continue his search for ultimate happiness in other, other things. And so the preacher does not only seek happiness in great works, right? He also seeks happiness in possessions. Look at verse 7 and 8. It says, I, he says, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. Verse 8, listen to the stuff he has. He goes, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers both men and women and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. The preacher had built an empire, so he needed a massive workforce to manage it. And so what does he do? He recruits an entourage of slaves to help him manage everything that he had built. He also had flocks and herds. And listen to what he says about it. He says, they were more than any any who had been before me in Jerusalem. He accumulated an insane amount of gold and silver. Apparently, right, he had so much money, silver and gold was as common as stone to him. The other thing is, look, if you read it, he, he says, I got singers. Okay, he might not have had access to um, um, Spotify or whatever, but he had something better. He was actually able to recruit the singers, invite them into one of his homes so that they can do live private performances for him and his guests. 
It also says that he indulged in sexual pleasure. He says he had many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. Back then, a concubine was a woman given to a man simply for the purpose of sexual pleasure. And so, listen to this. If King Solomon is the writer of Ecclesiastes, which I think he is, then the author, right, apparently if we're looking at 1 Kings and looking, you know, if you look at 1 Kings, it talks about Solomon and all his great wealth and everything it has, but it also talks about his concubines, and apparently he had 300 concubines in addition to his 700 wives, The preacher had more sexual relations with women than Hugh Hefner and basketball all-star Wilt Chamberlain, who once claimed to have been with 20,000 women. The preacher fulfilled every one of his sexual fantasies. He experienced sexual pleasure almost endlessly. Like the preacher, Hugh Hefner, Wilt Chamberlain, and anyone else in those categories, some of you are seeking ultimate satisfaction, happiness, and meaning in sexual pleasures. Some of you are like, wait, what, Obed, what? <laughs> can, you, can you still really get concubines in the 21st century? Probably can. You may not have over a thousand concubines waiting in many, you know, in your many homes to fulfill all of your sexual desires. But you have access to that many possibly more, through the pornographic content you've been watching on the internet and the pornographic content you've been reading in romance novels. Zach Kendrick says this. This is the same trap that so many people fall into today. Though they may not have sexual encounters with 1,000 women, Men, and I would say women today, can have a larger harem than the preacher through the internet. Not much has changed. The use of pornography is an epidemic in our culture and sadly in our churches. And so, if you're here, and you're addicted and struggling with pornography, this is my encouragement to you. Please stop hiding it and get help. Confess your struggle with someone. Don't fight it alone. Call on people in our church family Agree to meet them regularly 
so that you can confess, so they can pray for you, so that you can begin to walk on the path of freedom. Don't hide it. The preacher did not only look for happiness in the good life, great works, and possessions, but he looked to find happiness in glory. Okay, look at verse 9. So he became great and surpassed, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. The preacher amounted so much wealth, he became greater than any other leader in Jerusalem. And because of this, he viewed himself as the crowning jewel of a long lineage of Jewish kings. He made himself great, and whatever he wanted, he got. The preacher lived the life of the rich and famous. He had it all in the era of Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and all of these billionaires, it's hard to imagine a more prosperous time in human history. However, many believe that the preacher, who could be Solomon's, his wealth supersedes that of all modern billionaires. He is arguably the richest human to have ever lived. And so, after seeking ultimate satisfaction and happiness in the pleasures of life, the preacher, this is what he does. He just takes time out to reflect on his experiment and all of his findings. And this is how he concludes. Look at verse 11. Shouldn't be a surprise to us, but we're going to read it anyway. He says, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, what was it? All was vanity and the striving after wind and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. After God created the heavens and the earth and everything in it. How did he respond? He looked at it, Genesis 2, and said, this is good. But after the preacher in Ecclesiastes pursued happiness in the good life, happiness in great works and material possessions, he takes a step back, considers everything he's just built and achieved, and what does he say? It's vanity. It's pointless. It's meaningless. Put simply, I'm still not satisfied. I I'm still empty and disappointed. And so, what can we learn from the preacher? What can we learn from his pursuit of happiness in the good life, great works, material possessions, and glory? First, this is what we can learn. We are obsessed with happiness. We are obsessed with happiness. The preacher's pursuit of pleasure was driven by an obsession to be happy. He believed that giving himself to the pleasures of life would give him ultimate satisfaction and happiness. The preacher 
may have lived in a different era to us, right? He was in the ancient world. He may have had a different social status to most of us. He was wealthy, but we have more in common with him than we think. Just like the preacher, we too are obsessed with finding ultimate happiness and satisfaction in this life. Every person in the world wants to know what will make him or her happy. We're all desperately seeking for that person or place or thing or promotion that will meet our expectations, all of our needs, all of our wants. Happiness is what we all live for. Blaise Pascal, who has one of the awesomeness names, says this, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they use, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both, to be happy. This is the motive of every action and every man, even those who hang themselves. So the question is, why do you do what you do? According to Blaise Pascal, the reason you do what you do is because you want to be happy. Most of your daily rhythms and the decisions you make are for your happiness. Your pursuit of happiness is why you wake up in the morning. You seek satisfaction in relationship, in recreational activities. Some of you are living in San Diego, and what brought you here was the fact that you just wanted to be happy. Happiness is what we all live for. We are obsessed with happiness. That's the first one. The second thing we learn from this passage is this. We're never fully satisfied. We're never fully satisfied. Although we're obsessed with happiness and satisfaction, we're never fully satisfied. What's interesting, okay, about all of this is this. Our pursuit of happiness and satisfaction in the things of this world will always leave us bitterly disappointed. Why? Because the things of this world never really satisfy. The preacher, this is, this is a guy who had everything, right? Lived incredible life. But the irony is, after he had achieved and experienced everything, he turns around and says, I'm not satisfied. This is all vanity. It's like chasing after the wind. David Gibson helps us here. He says, he discovered that although we pursue happiness in every corner of our lives, in the same corners lurks the darkness of diminishing returns. In the end, achievements and pleasures do not last. Happiness is a vanishing vapor. And so the preacher in Ecclesiastes is saying this to all of us today. Okay, If we were able to sit with him, Right, and grab a coffee or a tea with him, 
and we got to this point, he will look at us and say, look, I have had it all, and I have done it all, but at the end of the day, I was left bitterly disappointed. And if you think you will find ultimate satisfaction and happiness only if you have what I had, you're deceived. Some of you are like, I'm having a hard time with this. Some of you, to some of you, the preacher's like your parents or the grandparents, all right? You know, when they give you advice and you look at them and you're like, man, you're so old school, right? We're in a different age. We're in a different time right now, okay? Some of you may be looking at the preacher that way, that, bruv, you lived in the ancient times, right? This is the modern times. Things are different. But let me just say, before you reject the preacher... And what he has to say, let me remind you that he wasn't the first or the last person who had everything to feel empty, right? Think about it. How many celebrities have gone through rehab? Right? You do your research. I mean, every other celebrity has checked into rehab and they're recovering from some sort of addiction. In a wealth and happiness study by the Wall Street Journal titled, Don't Envy the Super Rich, They Are Miserable, the study showed that wealthy people are generally dissatisfied because whose money has contributed to deep anxieties involving love, work, and family. In the 2016, Time magazine published an article titled, Here's How Winning the Lottery Makes You Miserable. Right? It's there. Here's how winning the lottery makes you miserable. The article does this. It looks at the lives of several lottery winners and reports that many of them before the so-called curse of the lottery, with some squandering their fortunes and others meeting tragic ends. In the article, Don McKnay, who is a financial consultant to lottery winners and the author of Life Lessons from the Lottery, has this to say. He says this, so many of them wind up unhappy or wind up broke. People have had terrible things happen to them. People commit suicide. People run through their money. Easy comes, easy goes. They go through divorce or people die. This is a consultant, financial consultant for lottery winners. One winner said this, I wished that I had torn the ticket up. After winning millions. Another said, my life was hijacked by the lottery. All right, we're not going to go. So many examples, but I think it's safe to say that the wealthy who have everything in this world are not as happy as we think they are. And this is not just the case for the rich and famous, but I think it's also true for us as well. Okay, um, nothing ultimately satisfies, and we know this for sure. Okay, we think we need more to be happy, but when we accumulate more, we are still unhappy. This is the reason people commit adultery, 
okay? I've always wanted to get married. I so desire to be married. They get married, wedding day was awesome. Several years later, they commit adultery. This is also why abuse of drugs is an epidemic. It's to escape the fact that, man, I thought this job, I thought this experience would fully satisfy me, but it hasn't, and I'm feeling the pains and disappointments and shame, and so I am going to escape with drugs. This is another reason why people binge watch ridiculously amounts of television and scroll endlessly on Facebook and Twitter. All of these things and more happen because people haven't found happiness. We've been conditioned to believe the lie that a better job, more money, cooler friends, another spouse, or a new life is really what we need. And if we can't obtain any of these things or when they leave us dissatisfied, what do we do? We turn to drug abuse, sexual immorality, or senseless entertainment in order to escape. Philip Holmes says this. He's a blogger on Desiring God. He says, the problem is our hearts are black holes of discontentment, devouring relationships and possessions, all while screaming, I need more. We're always eating, but famished, always drinking, but never satisfied. God's wisdom through the book of Ecclesiastes reminds us that we will never find ultimate satisfaction if we keep looking for it in created things. Pleasure under the sun never truly or consistently satisfies. And so the question is, do we have any hope? Is there a way our dissatisfied souls can be fully satisfied? If the many things in this world never truly satisfy, is there anywhere else we can look for true satisfaction? So we've seen two things so far. We're obsessed with happiness and we're never fully satisfied. Lastly, I want us to look to the place and to the person where we can actually be fully satisfied. And number three is only Jesus can truly satisfy. And some of you are here like, oh yeah, cliche, I knew that was coming. But man, it's so true. It's so true. Only Jesus can truly satisfy. Let's not become too familiar with this truth. We, we, we just overlook it. 
and begin to question whether it's true or not. It's true. Over and over again in the Bible, we're offered and reminded of what will give us lasting fulfillment and true satisfaction. And it's not found in anything under the sun in created things, but true and lasting and eternal happiness and satisfaction can only be found above the sun in the God who created everything. One of the purposes of the book of Ecclesiastes is to make us dissatisfied with this world so that we can look for satisfaction in the God who created this world, right? Ecclesiastes, this is why I think the book exists. Ecclesiastes exists to weaken our satisfaction in created things and strengthen our satisfaction in the God who created everything. Philip Ryken says this, the world is not enough. Ecclesiastes does not show us this to make us discouraged or depressed, but to drive us back to God. This is not all there is. We were made for another world. We will remain unsatisfied as long as we look for satisfaction in what God has given us. But we will be fully satisfied in life as long as we look to God himself. And I know some of you may be listening to me. And all of this time you're thinking, oh my gosh, here we go again. Another Sunday and another sermon telling me everything is bad and nothing will satisfy. So my option now is to just be miserable, right? It's to just be miserable and live this miserable life and not want a house, not want a spouse, not want anything that makes me happy. I'm not saying that, and Ecclesiastes is not saying this, right? Vacations... Building wealth, being wise with your money, working hard, interior design, all of that sex with your, with your spouse are not evil, but good things God gives us to enjoy. They really are. Nothing wrong with these things. They are absolutely good, but these good things become bad things the moment they become God things. When we look to them to give us the meaning and satisfaction and happiness only God can, that's where they become problems. The problem is not the things in and of themselves, but rather the value we place in them. Our appetite for pleasure is not inherently wrong. The problem comes when our appetites turn us away from God. That's the problem. When we value and treasure created things more than our good and great and gracious God, 
We all have desires, desires given to us by our creator God. Our hearts need satisfaction and our souls need connection. God does not forbid pleasure. He simply reminds us of the vanity of trying to find purpose in pleasure or trying to find um, pleasure in the wrong ways. In his brilliant essay titled The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis talks about kind of the futility uh, of the pursuit of happiness and satisfaction under the sun. And this is what he has to say. I love this quote. It's brilliant. He says, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. If you're a Christian, because of Jesus and because of what he's done, you get to experience and enjoy and delight in the God of the universe. This is no joke. This is not something that has been made up. God actually exists. And because of what Jesus has done, we not only have access to God, but we get to enjoy him. We are too easily pleased. So many things in the world that are good, I get it. But we are too easily pleased. We prefer futile, vanishing things, and we have more joy in those things than we have in God. So this is what, this is what this morning, this is all about. We are designed for more than the trivial pursuit of pleasure. Seeking satisfaction in the things of this world is like chasing the wind. As soon as we're, you know, we're exhausted and weary from our pursuit, we're left empty-handed and disappointed. God supplies us with ultimate satisfaction in the crucified and risen Christ. Jesus is the true preacher king who brings the joy we need. He is the one who brings the enjoyment that we missed in the garden because he brings us into right relationship with God. He is the source of true intimacy, true pleasure, and true joy. So when we turn to Jesus, something Something miraculous happens in our lives. And some of you may have experienced this. The very pleasures that failed to satisfy us help us find greater joy in the goodness of God. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us. Help us to be way more satisfied in you the giver than in the gifts you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.